Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So just a quick recap, uh, some of the things we looked at, truth doesn't change. This is very important for us to remember. Truth doesn't change. It doesn't change. Uh, it doesn't mind being questioned. Uh, that's another really important one. We don't have to be afraid of, of questions. We don't. Uh, we don't. I, in fact, I've learned something over the years. I learned this. I used to be in, very intimidated by it. I won't lie. But, uh, but um, I learned in the mentoring times. One of my favorite things to do when I was doing church renewal mentoring, when I was getting to lead those sessions, is to get to a place where I would ask for questions. And you start just kind of looking forward to it because you don't really know what, what people are going to ask. And it be, began to be in a bit of an adventure because, you know, what's the Holy Spirit going to reveal in the moment or what kind of answer can you give? And sometimes then you just didn't know. Sometimes he didn't give an answer or I didn't have one. And I said, that's a great question. I'm going to ask someone wiser and smarter than me. And you know what? That's okay. We don't have to be afraid of questions. But that was the purpose of last week's message because if we're going to go there for, we will get questions. That's why we have that First Peter 3.15 attached to that prayer request, right? But always honor Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts, yes, but being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, but always with gentleness and respect. I'm finally getting that down. That was the one verse I was having trouble memorizing, but I've gotten it finally by February. Anyways, but that's the, that's the thing, right? So that's why we were talking about this, because I don't want, you know, if we're going to start going out and you're going to start loving people and you look for an opportunity to pray for them, or what if, you know, hey, can I pray for you? No, I don't believe in prayer. Why do you even, like, I don't think, and then they, oh, you throw you off, or they ask you, I don't believe in God because of this. How could a loving God fill in the blank? There's lots of accusations being levied, and then we can get thrown off by a question. So the purpose of this, this message and, and last week was to give us anchors, a foundation to stand upon, so that even if winds and waves and, you know, rain fall and crash against us, we don't fall. And that's the purpose. So that's what we're doing. Uh, truth is not influenced by our feelings. It stands the test of time, and it's very simple. So we looked at uh, subjective truth, which is based on your perspective, feelings, or opinions. Uh, you'll remember I, I used that, that as an excuse last week to talk about cats multiple times, uh, and I do that unashamedly. Uh, today, I don't have a way to talk about them, so I thought I would do it in the, in the recap. <laughs> but I am wearing cat socks, if you wanted to know. You probably didn't. All right. Ob objective truth, though, is not based on feelings, but it's based on a verifiable fact. We talked about how you can determine objective truth through evidence, right? If all of the evidence shows you that, right, if, if the evidence shows uh, that someone has been in the bush, I use that hunting example, right, when you can see a path, you, you know there's evidence something or someone has been there, right? And then you can determine objective truth that way. Um, so that's what we looked at a lot of last week. So today I want to start by finishing... Uh, remember, we looked at two anchor points, and I said creation, uh, right? God exists as, as seen throughout creation, and we looked at that, but also then there was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I didn't give you any evidence for that. We did look at a bit of the evidence for the first one. Uh, we didn't do any evidence for that one because we didn't have time. So I thought, today we'll focus a bit on that, and then I'm going to add the third one, which again ties in with uh, what we talked about last week with the cat picture and drawing. There, I said it again. All right, uh, first though, let's take a look. Kyle, uh, Kyle Shepard, our, our high school director, he sent me some stats this week from Barna Group that I thought were really good because it relates to what we're talking about and why this is important. Again, now you might say, well, what if everyone in here already agrees on this stuff? That's great. I'm glad we agree on truth. 
I'm very, very glad for that. But we're also called to go and disciple out of here, right? And that's the whole point. So we want to make sure that we are, that we are ready uh, when we go out as well. So a couple of stats let's take a look at. This is uh, for Gen Z's, uh, ten, age 10 to 25, and millennials, which is 26 to 41. So technically, I sneak in as a millennial. So for all you young people here, I'm young like you. <laughs> yeah, it's not funny. It's serious. All right. Um, so this is now, the beginning is just for Gen Z's, 10 to 25. 37% say it's not possible to know if God is real. 58% um, believe many religions lead to eternal life. And 62% of adults agree. That's a scary one right there. That's a scary one, right? All paths lead to the same place. Um, so that's a, that's a dangerous idea because remember, like we said last week, if God is real, if Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected, then he defines the pathway to life. He defines love. He defines right and wrong, not us. So then it's very important that we get this right on what is truth and can we know truth and, and then follow that truth. So 34% say the Bible is God's word, no errors, but some symbolism. All right, 22% say the Bible is God's word, no errors taken literally. 14% say the Bible is God's word, but has factual or hysterical, hysterical, <laughs> historical errors. Yeah, maybe, they're, maybe they meant hysterical as well. 14% say the Bible is just another book written by men that contains stories, you know, stories about God or stories about their experiences. Uh, and then 9% say they don't know how to define it, and 8% say it's not inspired by God but tells stories of how the writers understood God. Most significant is when you look at the millennials, and uh, here you'll see that 16% versus 22 of millennials believe the Bible is inspired and should be taken literally, and 23% versus 14 think the Bible is just another book. So more millennials actually than the Gen Zers uh, think that the Bible is just another book. So you can see, now you might look at that and say, okay, well, some of these stats are really bad, some of them aren't that bad, but what you need to know is they're moving in the wrong direction because these things aren't static, right? It's not like it's holding the line where we just shared it. These are newer statistics, right, uh, that reflect uh, what they call a post-Christian era, a, a phrase that we've used here, that reflect that we've moved past the Christian era into a post-Christian era. And you know what? Like I said last week, we don't have to fear that. We just have to adjust to it. We need to make adjustments on, on how we think of church and our role in church and that kind of stuff. So that's fine. All right, so uh, let's take a look at these, the three anchor points uh, where the existence of God is demonstrated through creation. Remember the Romans 1.20, it says, creation itself testifies so that no man has an excuse. When we stand before him, no one will have an excuse. And, and we could do a whole message on that and how that relates to what if someone doesn't hear about God? That'll come in another message, uh, right? And how does that work and how does that look? Uh, but that's an important piece. So once you look at the evidence, remember we looked at the Kalam, that argument, William Lane Craig's argument, the cosmological argument, and he showed how logically it makes sense, right? Either God made it or who made it. And so we were really left with two options. The universe is either created by someone of incredible power or the universe popped into existence out of nothing. And, and then the question we have to ask ourselves is which one is harder to believe, right? And for me, it's a lot harder to believe that it popped into existence out of nothing. Um, so I think that's a lot of you in here. All right. The second one was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's where we're going to park uh, today. If there is no evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus then one can easily charge that the claims that Jesus made were subjective and not objective, right? Because it's the evidence. So you can say someone's guilty of a crime, 
right? But that doesn't make it objectively true unless you can prove that, right? So if, if you can prove it with evidence, uh, then, then they can be guilty of that crime, but they're innocent unless uh, proven guilty. So uh, let's look at some evidence, and we'll, we'll start with the evidence, and then we'll go to number three afterwards. Evidence for the historicity of Jesus, his life and death. So this is very important. Um, I, I looked up lots of, uh, I, I actually, I wasn't just looking up Christian articles. I was also looking up atheistic ar uh, articles on this as well because I always find it valuable, at least for myself, to kind of look at both sides. What are the best arguments? What are they saying? What are they looking at? What, what's the sticking points for different people? And so anyhow, there's lots uh, from the Bible and also non-Christian, and, and we'll get to that now. So the first thing is, biblically, so what do we have? What's the evidence? Well, we have the four gospel accounts. Now, you might say, yeah, but the gospels, is that real evidence? Well, it is. It's historical manuscripts. We use that as evidence for lots of his history that we say is fact. Um, so it's, it's good to, to know that, right? So over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament alone, with an astounding 2.6 million pages of biblical text. Now they do say some are like bite-sized pieces and some were uh, up to 450 page chunks. So they range in size, but the point is there's actually a lot of, there's a lot of manuscripts, there's a lot of text that, that affirm and confirm the, the gospel accounts of what happened, right? And so that's an important thing for us to understand. And with that, um, you know, when they're written is also important. So, you know, some will say, and you'll see different things, uh, you know, that say 30 years, within 30 years of Jesus' life. Uh, I can't, I, I haven't been able to find anything confirmed. So what most people can agree upon, so that might be so, but, the, the, but where it's easy to stand firm for sure is 50 to 70 years. We can stand firm on 50 to 7 years. That, that is, that, that's not really disputed. People can all agree on that 50 to 70 years, although some do claim that, that a lot of the text could be dated right within 30 years of Jesus' life. And that's obviously very important um, because uh, this is in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. So if you're writing something in the lifetime of eyewitnesses, it's a lot harder to fabricate things. Does that make sense? Because people are alive that will have seen it and experienced it themselves. It's very hard to just make up something this big uh, without seeing anyone refute it. So that's a very important thing for us to remember. Uh, then we go on to non-Christian records because still I know you might say, well, that's Christian. What about non-Christian? You'll see there's four sources there. So you have evidence from uh, Tychidus, and this is what he wrote there. This is a bit of a paraphrase. Uh, well, it's not, but I just removed pieces. It's redacted. Uh, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Jesus, from whom the name had, orig had origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but in Rome. And what I find really fascinating about that is you notice how he's not even in favor of it. I think the words used to describe it was an evil movement. He thought it was an evil movement, but it was a movement nonetheless based on a, a person who he confirms both lived and died. That's important, right? So the second one we have evidence from is uh, Josephus, and about this time, this is what he writes, but about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. 
Well, that's interesting. He even seems to talk about their claims that, uh, that he was risen back to life. So that's Josephus. Now, it's, it's good to know that uh, Josephus wasn't born when it happened. He wasn't an eyewitness. Uh, he would have been... Um, he would have been born right after. So he was born right after, but he was alive. He was a well-respected uh, aristocrat and military leader, and he will have known. So he will have had a high position of influence, and he will have known lots of people who will have been eyewitnesses and had direct contact. So he's writing based on that, but he wasn't a personal witness, but he's writing, you know, within, you know, a few years of, of uh, or a few decades anyways, of Jesus actually being here, of the events taking place. Babylonian Talmud on the eve of the Pas uh, Passover, Yeshua was hanged for 40 days before the execution took place. A herald cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to ap apostasy. So that's a really interesting one there because they talk about him practicing sorcery. Now I would say that's a false claim. He wasn't practicing sorcery. But it does give validity to he was doing miracles. Something he was doing, they attributed to the supernatural. So he wasn't just going around being a good guy. He was doing something that they were attributing to the supernatural. They just weren't buying the whole God thing, that it was their God, right? Uh, then we have the last one, Lucian. The Christians, they worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified. So there you have the life and death confirmed. And it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they all are brothers from the moment that they are converted. So they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. So again, attributing them to, you know, they talk a bit about that faith, right? Well, as soon as they seem to come into faith, they seem to all become brothers. So that they found as odd. And they worship uh, th this guy, Jesus, and they called him a sage. Okay, so they also kind of ascribe the, the supernatural to him. All right, now, some of the objections uh, that I did find um, on there, and this is, I'm not going to give every objection, but I, I will give some of the more popular ones. And the first one was we shouldn't believe the Bible writers because they already believe in Jesus. Now, this one both makes sense and doesn't make sense. Like, I, it depends on how you look at it, but the idea is, you know, we shouldn't listen to people's opinion if they already believe in it. And I, I can see where the criticism comes from because the, the, the idea is they have a bias, right? So they have a bias. Now, I totally get that because the bias could be there. I have biases. We all have biases. The idea of being unbiased, we can try to be unbiased, but we cannot help ourselves but be biased because we all see everything through our experiences, our beliefs, our decisions, our, right, our, histor our history, our families that were brought in, and all that kind of stuff. So yes, it does shape us. So there's no denying that. But this is like saying, to say that we should completely discount it, would be like saying, let's say you were in a court case and, you know, you saw there was a group in the, in, you know, in, in your jury, there was a group in there who had examined the evidence and had already determined that the guy was guilty. That'd be like coming and saying, well, this group has already examined the evidence and determined he's guilty, so we shouldn't listen to them. We should only listen to those who haven't made a decision yet or who think he's innocent regardless. Obviously, we wouldn't say that. I don't think we should switch or flip to the other side either. You know what I actually value? I value hearing from all people. I value hearing people's questions no matter how they're determining what they believe on the evidence. I'm not afraid of the questions. We don't have to be afraid of questions on truth. I believe the evidence is sufficient, and I'll get to my third point. There's a third one on there too, but I believe there's enough evidence to logically come to the conclusion that our faith is valid, that it's true, that we're not believing in a myth. Uh, I think that's very reasonable to come to that conclusion. So the answer on this one, though, uh, will be, you know, 
whatever they're, oh yeah, did I go ahead? No, I had it here. This would be the answer. Okay, yeah, sorry, I lost my place on here. I was jumping to the next one and I got confused. So uh, the answer to this one is the first question you have to ask on this whole thing, right? Because would they just, you know, did they have a bias or would they just make it up? You have to ask the question of motive. What would their motive be for making it up? Because it's assuming that, you know, if you took a modern day Christian or let's say you took myself. Well, you might say myself, I would have a reason to defend my, my faith. You could even say I'm, I'm defending it because it's my livelihood. I have a family to support. Now, I'd like to say that, <laughs> I hope you don't think that I'm doing it just for a job, uh, that if, if I'm doing it because the Lord has called me to be here. But it would be fair to ask that question. Well, maybe you're just defending it and you believe it because you're, getting, you're profiting from it. Well, that's the whole point, though. When you look at the original writers, the ones that were claiming this to be true, what was their motivation? They didn't get money or power or fame. In fact, they got the exact opposite. How many people want to make up a lie and die for it when it cost them everything? They didn't get any of those usual motivators that would draw someone in. So they were killed, tortured, rejected, ridiculed. They suffered greatly. Christianity actually only became popularized in 300 AD. That's when it really started to grow in popularity. But before then, it was not a good thing to be saved. And, and we clearly have these manuscripts within 50 to 70 years. A lot of these writers are making these claims in the time when these claims will cause them to suffer. And so that's an important thing for us to understand when we're hearing objections like that. Well, they already believed they, had, they might have had a, a motive or a bias. That, that's a real big stretch in this case because their belief cost them so much. All right, the next one though. Uh, the other one would be, uh, the other big attack is actually on the decades only, right? So they, whether it's the believer's accounts or even the non-Christian accounts uh, that I was reading, that, that they often come into question because of the time frame. So the accusation there was exactly like what, what I was saying was a benefit. They're saying is actually something that we should look at. Whoa, I don't know if we can trust it because no one actually wrote during Jesus' life. So we, we haven't found something during his life. It's all written after the fact and describing it. Now, they also talked about with that one that they don't have artifacts. But then when you just look at normal historians, right? And then when they actually interview normal historians, what you find is that is true for most people unless you were a king. It's, it's very common on the artifact one that you wouldn't find that type of evidence for a normal person, you wouldn't find that unless you were a king that had palaces and that kind of stuff and statues, uh, but you wouldn't find it. But on the historical side, they said you're not going to find records of most people unless they've done something, you know, amazing or been a ruler. Jesus wasn't a king and a ruler in that sense. He came to serve. It was only, you know, his life was in turmoil and all this kind of stuff, but it sparked something. So it sparked something. So people started writing about it after the fact because they saw the evidence of what happened with his life and death and resurrection. So that's a very important thing for us to, to kind of keep in context. And besides, when you compare it to other people, like other men or, or things that we take as historical fact, and now there's lots of legends surrounding King Arthur, but we know he's a historical figure that's based on far less evidence that's dating within 300 to 400 years after he lived. So no one has a problem accepting that he was a real person. Now, there's lots of myth and uh, legend around, you know, how he lived and what he all did. But no one, no one disputes the fact that he was a real person. 
And like I said, so if, we're, if we have no problem disputing that or believing that within 300 to 400, uh, we should have no problem with stuff that we know is within 50 to 70 years of the actual event because there you still have eyewitnesses that are alive. And that leads me to this last um, point here, and this kind of fits in together. This is a really important thing for us to also realize. There's no historical accounts of people disputing the life and death of Jesus. And that's critical because if you were going to say, you know, if I, like if I would just make up somebody that existed 50 years ago, there's people in here that will have lived, and if I started talking about his great exploits and then started using actual names of rulers and places that he went, it would be very easy to poke holes in that. Especially when you consider that it's not like everyone just believed it. There was heavy opposition in the beginning. Heavy, heavy, heavy opposition. So if the whole thing was made up, if they were just saying, you just made this guy up and now you're creating this movement, people would have been objecting to it on the side of, I was there and that never actually happened. And you don't find evidence of that. You find evidence speaking to the life and death of Jesus. You actually don't find any evidence saying that they were disputing whether he was alive and whether he died until way after the, uh, the fact until way, way after. And so that's now being disputed. By the way, I know it's usually been settled by now, but I saw the last article that I read was dated 2016, and they were still saying, well, we should, we should bring that back into question now in 2016. Did he actually live and did he, or, or did he not, right? Is he actually just made up? All right. So we can uh, safely say there is enough evidence for the historicity of Jesus. He was a real person and he lived and died. That we can say for sure. That's objective truth. That's objective truth. There is, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that says that's true. We can hold on to that. Now, then we have to go to the resurrection. That's the third part. Remember last week we looked at Corinthians where he said if the resurrection didn't happen, then, <laughs> then, then we're all fools. And that is basically what he says. Then we're all fools. We're all deceived. Then there's no reason for our hope if the resurrection didn't happen. So we're going to look at two things uh, for the resurrection. First is the empty tomb. That's a very important one. So there's three things we're going to look at on the empty tomb. Uh, and the first one is who owned it. And now this is actually very important. So who owned it is very important. Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Arimathea. So he was of the uh, Sanhedrin. And that's very important. He was a known figure of the time. So again, this is why it's important. Remember what I said before. There's no historical accounts disputing his life and death. So if you're going to make something up, it's, uh, and especially if you're going to do it within 50 to 70 years of the event, it's not a good idea to use widely known people that everyone will know, uh, especially when it's coming from the opposition's camp. But yet the scriptures report that Joseph, he owned the tomb, and he was the one that went and got Jesus' body brought down and buried it. And so that's an important piece of evidence. That's an important piece of evidence, right? Because we don't see anyone disputing that. The second one, though, which is also very important, uh, is the Bible records women as the first witnesses. Now, obviously, this wouldn't be a problem now, but we have to understand in the culture of the day, it was a problem because women weren't even allowed to testify in court uh, because they weren't seen as reliable witnesses. Um, so if you're going to, again... It doesn't help your case. Like, if I'm thinking of a way to deceive the masses, and there's lots of problems with why, you have to prove motive, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but if I was going to deceive the masses, uh, I wouldn't pick, you know, the first one. I wouldn't say a guy from the opposition is the one who owned the tomb. 
where it would be super easy for people to just go and verify if he actually did own the tomb, if, if the tomb had Jesus in it, and if the tomb was found empty. It'd be very easy to verify. Secondly, I wouldn't say the first people to see that the tomb was empty was women, calling into question the reliability of the eyewitness. Remember, we're not saying that for now. Obviously, we have no problem with, with, with women. We are, we're all called to serve and lead, and, and we do so even in the church. But, uh, but we're talking about when it was written, because the context of when it was written is what's most important in this case, when we're looking at evidence. So that's an important piece. And third, Jesus, or the, the Bible actually records that the Jewish leaders admitted to Jesus' body uh, being missing. They weren't refuting it. And again, the time frame that this is being written, if, 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 you know, if I would write this now, or if someone would have written this 500 years after the fact, saying, and the Jewish leaders uh, admitted that he was gone, but came up with their own stories of how he, how he uh, disappeared, well, you could say, well, 500 years after the fact, no one's alive to dispute that. It's very convenient for you to be able to write it 500 years later. Remember, the timing and, and the dating of when these texts are written are really important for how, how, like, how, uh, how valid they are, right, in an argument on evidence. And these are all dating within 50 to 70 years. So again, if you're going to make these kind of claims, it would be outrageous to make these kinds of claims in a time when the eyewitnesses can refute. So that's the third one. And so, in conclusion, the site of Jesus' tomb was known to Christians and Jews alike. If it wasn't empty, there would have been no way for the Christians to, to create this story, to fabricate a story of the empty tomb, uh, because people would have been refuting it. People would be going there and saying, hey, like he's right, he's actually right there, we can, we can see his bones. His body is right over there, like we can actually go in and see it, and we did see it, and you're, you're just making that up. And yet we don't find that. But the second part is, so not only do you not find anyone refuting the fact of the, empty, of the empty tomb, you also have to establish motive. Motive is very important when you're calling into question someone's eyewitness testimony. Motive is important. What motive would they have to deceive? Now, the Jewish leaders, they, they just said that the disciples stole the body, right? Because they're trying to, make, they're trying to prove that they were right. They were following Jesus, and they wanted to prove that he was right. So now they're going to go and steal his body. Well, that's a really good, you know, that's a really good accusation. It makes sense, doesn't it, when you just look at it from the outside? I mean, now they were following. They'd given up their lives to kind of following this Jesus, and now he was crucified, and they said that he was going to raise, be raised back to life. And now his body's gone, proving that the, that the Pharisees were wrong and the disciples were right. And so the charge is that the disciples had motive to steal the body. And that might actually be true if you don't consider all of the rest of the information. All but one of the original disciples died uh, horrible deaths for their beliefs. It'd be hard enough to find one person to die for something that they knew they made up. Who holds on to that? but multiples? Because think about it. For them, they were devastated. Also, look at how they left. I mean, Peter denied Jesus. The rest kind of went away and fled. They were crushed. They, they didn't understand fully, even though Jesus made it very clear that he was going to die and be raised. They didn't fully get it, did they? They didn't get it, and they were crushed when Jesus was crucified. It doesn't seem to hold that they had any motive to steal his body and then be willing to then go and suffer and die for him. 
The Jews obviously wouldn't have stolen the, bo uh, the body. That wouldn't actually make any sense at all because they would just prove themselves wrong. So that one you can easily cross off the list. You basically have three options because there's three groups of people living there that could potentially have motive. Uh, the Jews wouldn't have done it and obviously the Romans wouldn't have done it because they don't want an insurrection. They were already, Pilate had a hard time crucifying Jesus in the first place because he couldn't find any wrong with him. So why did he do it? Even though he couldn't find wrong, he did it because he didn't want insurrection. So they don't have motive. So there isn't anyone with real motive for stealing the body. So we know that Jesus lived and that he died and we know that the tomb was empty. Right? So what's our other logical alternative? That God raised Jesus from the dead. You might say that's impossible. Well, but it's probable. I mean, what other options do we have? So that brings me to the next one. If, he did, if God did raise him from the dead, if that statement is true, if that's the logical explanation, uh, then what about the appearance? Did he appear? Did anyone see him alive? All right, the appearance of Jesus. And by the way, I know many of you will have heard a lot of these kinds of things before, and maybe you haven't. If you haven't, that's awesome. If you have, that's also awesome. I just wanted to be, you know, a, a, a short and sweet apologetic so we can have confidence on what we're standing on. Right? When people say, that's just a myth, how can you believe in that? That's just, people just made that up to feel good. No, this is not a myth, and they didn't just make it up to feel good. You might not choose to want to follow him, but you can't just sit there and claim that it's a lie. There's too much evidence pointing to the truth to just say that it's all made up. All right, 1 Corinthians, let's look at this. The appearance of Jesus. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of all who are still alive. That's important. That's an important claim to make, right? He's saying they're still alive, most of them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then, all, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is Paul. And Paul talks about then how he was the least of the apostles, and he can't believe the, the grace that God demonstrates for him. Can't you relate to him sometimes? I know we haven't done everything he did, but do you ever just relate to that when you realize how much God loves you, and then you just pause, and you're like, why, why do you even put up with me? Why are you so incredibly faithful and kind? And, you know, I think about what our church has been through, and I alluded to that before, and I think, God, why do you just, you put up with us, and why do you just continue to lead us and guide us? And it's not because we've done anything special or unique. It's just because of his kindness and goodness, and I think it's incredible. That's not what we're talking about, though. Ah, but he is good, amen? Oh, yeah. All right. Again, risky thing to claim. This is a risky thing to claim for Paul. Number one, first, what's Paul's motive? Remember, Paul was persecuting the followers of the way. Paul was not a believer. So Paul claims that the reason he became a believer was because of a personal encounter with the risen Christ. So you actually have to figure that out because if Paul is a real guy and he's, and he's claiming and we look at, oh, he actually was persecuting the church, so we all know that, what causes a guy who's persecuting them and saying this is a lie to turn his life around and be willing to die for it? Paul claims that it's because he saw the risen Christ. And then he claims that 500 other people saw him at once, the apostles and the disciples. But the, 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 the claim of the 500 people, he said there was a group of 500 brothers that saw and many of them are still alive. That's a key thing that he's claiming there because if he's claiming they're still alive, how easy would that be to check their, their testimony? 
See, all of this, it's, it's, you know, it's our problem with the implications of, of if God is real, what does that mean for me? I think that's often the biggest hanging point. Because with the overwhelming amount of evidence, in a court of law, they would never have a problem making a decision. With the evidence, with, with the eyewitness testimony, like all of that put together, we would have no problem in most cases making a decision. But in this case, I think the biggest reason mankind has a problem accepting the facts is that the implications are, if he is real, then that means something to me. If God is real, then I am accountable to him. All right. So, objections. There is an objection this one. Most people who refute the life and death uh, of Jesus, um, they were saying that, that it's made up after the fact. Yeah, I, I did see that. Most aren't trying to discredit the life and death anymore. They're, they're more trying to, to discredit the resurrection. And so the most common ones that I still found, like I found one um, that was written. And by the way, I'm going to talk about this one and it'll sound like I'm not mocking the writer because he's writing with a bias. Well, guess what? When you're hearing me talk about Jesus, I'm talking with a bias. I love him. I've experienced him. I know him. He saved me. I'm loyal to him, fiercely loyal to him. So, of course, I have a bias when you ask me questions about him. And if you make charges against him, of course, I'll get upset, <laughs> right? Because I'm fiercely loyal to him. So, with that in mind, I'm not criticizing the, the bias, but we just have to realize sometimes we look at, oh, like they have really good objections. But some of the objections were found like the, the reason why we shouldn't believe the eyewitness testimonies were basically because we know nobody rises from the dead. Well, then you've already determined, before you look at any of the evidence, you've already determined your conclusion. That's actually not being objective with, with examining the evidence. It's not giving it a fair trial. And so I think that's very important. But I did see one study that they used to show that just because they weren't even trying to refute the eyewitness testimony, this was important. The, the best defense I saw didn't try to refute the witnesses because that actually looks pretty solid. They tried to refute whether it was actually Jesus or an hallucination. So there they said, well, we all know there's been studies that show there was the one study, 20,000 people who have all lost loved ones and 13% of those 20,000 report seeing their loved one after they died. Thus, we can conclude that yes, it's possible people could have seen Jesus after he died, but of course we know that it's not a miracle. Of course it's just an hallucination. And then I thought, well, I wonder what they say about the 500 because 500 people seeing that, that hallucination is also very, very different, isn't it? The same hallucination at the same time? Um, anyhow, and then he went on to, to describe, and the 500 people, we all know, again, we all know there was a big, they were supposing a lot in that. We all know that the group hallucinations are possible even though we don't totally know how that could happen. So anyhow, like I said, don't, it's, it's legitimate, I get it, there's a bias, you can hear that heavy in there though, can't you? You're, he's already, that's someone looking at the evidence who's already made up their mind, that's not actually being objective with the evidence. So, my conclusion is this, Jesus is not just a historical figure, although he is that. He is God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, gave his life as a ransom for those who are perishing, was raised back to life, is seated next to the Father and waiting, and we are waiting for his triumphant return. Right? Doesn't <sighs> that feel good? I get choked up saying that. All right. So that is the evidence. So I, like I said, those two anchor points, God as seen through creation is clear. That's a very, very clear one. Um, because I, we haven't heard any other really good uh, explanations for how 
all of this can pop into existence, time and space, from one single point without being orchestrated from the outside by something that doesn't exist in time and space and matter. Okay, so there's that. And then we have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's overwhelming amount of evidence for that. So let's get on to my third. Because remember we talked about the cat picture? And I said objective truth is like the, the black outline on a coloring page. And then I said a subjective experience, though, is important. I wasn't trying to devalue it. I just said the subjective experience doesn't, doesn't determine what's, what the picture is. The black lines do. But the, object, the objective experience, the, 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 our opinions and perspective within that can bring color to a black and white page and actually give it life. In the same way, number three is this. It's simple. One of my, my third anchor point is my personal testimony and experience of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And, by the way, I would say, the personal testimony of many millions of other people, including you guys in here and those who are watching online. And I know that doesn't, isn't true necessarily for everyone, but for most of you it is. Because not only do we have lots of evidence that he was a historical figure, I also have my personal experience of him. And if someone is going to try to bring me or to make me doubt uh, my faith, you're going to have to be able to discredit that experience, and it's not just one. I have many experiences with him. I experienced him this morning. I wasn't going to talk about that one, but this morning was just, wow, did I ever need that this morning. I pulled up my chair, I cleaned off my table. I'm like, Lord, I just need you to sit beside me this morning. What's going on? And he was there. I felt him. He spoke to me. And then he wasn't just my own thoughts. He spoke to me. He was kind. He, he showed me things that I hadn't considered before. He helped me see what I was going through from a totally different perspective. And all of that fits within the boundary lines as we see in the Bible and what the evidence shows us of who God is. Because I'm experiencing exactly what the Bible says he is like. He wants an intimate relationship with us. John 8, 32, look at this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. Not just knowledge of truth. You will know the truth. Not just history. And the truth will set you free. So, we have a personal and experiential relationship with him. And, you know, we talked about this. Uh, oh, I wish I could. I should have actually wrote, written the quote down. But uh, so, who, someone sent it to me on staff. Anyways, I've noticed there's a lot more coincidences in my life when I pray. <laughs> right? But we just come through the prayer and fasting month. I have like dozens now of prayers that have been answered. They all came at the end. But I have dozens of prayers that have been answered this year. And some of them big and some of them eensy beensy small. But that doesn't matter. How do you explain all that? You might say, well, you just engineered and organized. Some of them, there's no possible way. And some of the stories that I've heard of the prayers you guys were praying and the fleeces you were asking for, there's no way you can or or like organize that unless you were organizing it from above and had that kind of power. So how do you explain all of that? What about the many prophetic words that have been shared at this church or that we see in the Bible or that we've seen elsewhere, but the many prophetic words that have been given in this church that over time that we saw came to pass. How do you explain some of that stuff? You know, even when our, 
uh, I shouldn't, I'll just say it here anyways. You know what, when, when, we lo- when the church first went into lockdown in March 20 of, of 2020, right? March? Yeah, it was March 2020. Yeah. You know that three different people, myself included, had gotten a while, like we always say no names, dates, time, like timelines, all that kind of stuff, right? Births, deaths. We don't do that. So I had actually gotten a timeline. I felt like we had two years left. Two years left, uh, and then we were going to lose the building for some reason. And I actually thought it was because of charitable status disappearing. I was wrong. But we started organizing. If you're a cell leader here in the adult cell ministry side, that's, that was where I was working more at that time. We started meeting online and we started talking about things like charitable status. So that already started two years prior to when we actually lost our building because of COVID, right? When it was shut down. You know that two other people also had timelines that were different than mine that we didn't know about, we hadn't talked about, but all ended up at the same spot? You know how much faith I had that I was right? This much. (laughs) It was maybe smaller than a mustard seed. And then it happened, and you're like, oh my goodness. Well, how do you explain that? We were already getting people ready and, and our systems ready for going online before we even knew that that was a thing that was going to happen. And that fits within the boundary lines that Scripture says and details. It fits within. I'm coloring in the lines. This is the experience of my life, the experiences of many of your lives, the experiences of the people in the Bible who wrote the Bible's lives. <laughs> That's why it's my third anchor point. You know, I'll... Uh, Looking at the time. Okay, one more story. Because this one's actually on here. I was getting distracted. Because this one, I'm, I'm passionate about all of this stuff, right? But the experience, I'm like, come on. It's not just true facts that keep me going in life. Although I will do the right thing because it's the right thing, even if it's hard. But he beckons us into something even better than that. It's a relationship. It's intimacy. It's life. It's peace when it makes no sense. Anyways, so uh, years ago, obviously, many of you know my testimony. I didn't follow the Lord for a lot of years, uh, about a decade, uh, drug dealer, all that kind of stuff. I'm not doing that testimony now. But, so, I came out of that, and I had a natural fear of authority. So, for, for years, decades, actually, um, every time I'd see a police cruiser, especially if lights were on, like, I'm talking, like, instant sweating, cold, clammy, shoulders, neck, tense, eyes wide, pupils dilating, and stomach is, like, tight which we call anxiety. We're talking a total fear response every single time. And then I'm like calming myself down and all I can think in my head is, I'm going to be found out. I'm going to be found out. I'm going to be found out. And I don't know how many times I've told my friends, some of them that are in here and my wife, like how long do I have to be a law-abiding citizen before that goes away? Like I'm going to be found out for what? For following the law? (laughs) Like what am I going to be found out for? Where is this irrational fear coming from? Anyways, uh, a couple of years ago, before COVID hit, right before, me and Ray Yoder are down south in, in the States doing a, a conference on inner healing, which was great. Anyhow, we're coming back, driving a rental car, and, we're, and we see a state cruiser coming by. And sure enough, without fail, like every other time, and the lights aren't even on, here I am sitting there gripping the steering wheel tightly, white-knuckling it, and I'm telling Ray Yoder right away, and I just said, like, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. Like, why is this in me? And uh, since we had just been at an inner healing conference, uh, he joked with me and said, well, I guess you'll have to do some inner healing on that. And I thought, yeah, I guess I could. So I go home, and um, I go home, and I'm, I, I totally kind of forgot about it at first. And I got this verse uh, in my devotional time, Matthew 16, 18, and it says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And that, that's where I stopped right there. You ever had that with a verse where you're reading it, and it's like you, you read something, and you just stop, and you're like, oof. 
but you have no idea why, <laughs> that was this verse. You are Peter. Well, obviously I'm not Peter. And I just stopped on it. I'm like, you are Peter. I'm just looking at it. You are Peter. I'm like, what is, about, what is it about that statement? I'm like, it's so, I was trying to write down in the journal like why this was impacting me. I'm like, it's so, it's so, it's so definite. Like it's, it's just defined. It's like absolute. You are Peter. And I left it at that. I just said, okay, Lord, I'm not quite sure what you're trying to show me in that other than there's something about it that grips my heart. Well, a week later, I remembered to do the inner healing piece on this whole fear. I thought, well, I can give it a shot and see what happens. So I bring it to the Lord, and I bring this weird, irrational fear to the Lord. And as I'm bringing it there, you know, we go, get to the whole lie-based part and, and that feeling of, I'm going to be found out. And so I said, well, Lord, Holy Spirit, I can't stop that feeling. This is what I feel every time. And it's not a, it's not a rational thing. I know, like, what am I going to be found out for? It's like, it's a limbic response. I can't even control it. And so I said, Lord, what is the truth that you want? Would you minister to me, Holy Spirit? What is the truth that you would have for me today? And it was simple. He brought me to this verse, and he just said, you are Stephan. And it was final. And I actually started to chuckle. And it was like, in that moment, I realized, I'm Stephan. Yeah, I'm Stephan. I know this sounds dumb, right? But I'm like, oh yeah, how could you ever find me out to be anything but Stephan? I'll always be Stephan. That's who I am. What could you find out about me? Strengths, weaknesses, I'm still the same Stefan. And I just kind of laughed it off. But then you don't know, I mean, did anything change, right? That's the real proof is in the pudding. Well, um, within a week, me and Lou are driving back from the city. We're on Giesbrick there, and there must have been some kind of domestic uh, dispute. I only say that because there's three cruisers, lights on, family outside, and it looks bad. And so we're driving past and slow, trying not to stare like we do lots in our town. Uh, when we, <laughs> now this is not a good place to get pulled over, <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyways, we're, we're driving past, and what did I feel on the inside? I, I didn't even notice. I was feeling compassion for the family, and we, I actually did a small prayer for them. They're like, oh, that's sweet. Yeah, do you know that I never do that because I'm always so consumed in my anxiety. It actually took it till we were past until I had the realization, hey, wait a second. I didn't feel any fear. That fear response was completely gone looked into my, my uh, rearview mirror to see if the lights behind me would trigger it. No, and it hasn't triggered since. What is my point with all of this? That's my personal experience of Jesus. No one can take that from me. And I have many stories like that. Many of you have stories like that. And God gives them to you. He doesn't just want your life to be stagnant either. He wants to give you new experiences, fresh experiences with him, with his spirit. And as we understand and we learn and we grow in truth, because that's important, truth, the objective truth, and we get those boundary lines in our lives, as we see in this book here, it begins to define it, and we know it's rational and logical and reasonable. There's evidence to it. And this begins to define the boundary lines, and then we enter into this relationship with Jesus, and it comes alive. He begins to color in all the lines, and he takes even the dark parts of your life and, and your hurts and your fears and your anxieties and your pain, and it all becomes part of this beautiful picture, and it comes, you know, from something that you thought was maybe religion, and suddenly you have this relationship So for sake of time, we've got to close this up. My confidence for my faith is based on these three things. The objective truth of God as seen in creation. The objective truth of God as seen in the person, the historical person who is still alive today, of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And lastly, 
My faith is based on my own personal experience of Jesus as I've come to know him. As my Lord, my Savior, my Redeemer, my Deliverer, my friend. We're going to worship, we're going to sing one last song together, but maybe you just want to bow your heads, I want to pray first. Lord, I know there's many in here that need a fresh experience of you. Sometimes, Lord, we get so busy and the world's been so chaotic and, and things are changing. Things are, change has been the one constant these last two years. And Lord, we're just coming to you today saying we're tired. And we're so grateful that you love us and you've walked with us through this, yes. But we're tired. And today we come to you and we just lay down our lives before you. And we just declare that we completely need you 100%. And we solely, we rely on you for everything. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet us personally right now today? Lord, if there is sin that we're holding on to that has been pushing you away, today, Lord, we confess these things to you and we lay them at your feet. And Lord, if it's fear or bitterness or hurts, whatever it might be, that we've been holding on to because we don't even know how to let go, well, that's how we begin today. We just say, Lord, we want to let these things go, but we don't know how. So we're just going to open up our hands and we're going to say, would you take them from us? Lord, would you build a faith in us that is unshakable so that we could be bold, but not just bold for our own opinions, but that we would be bold to stand for truth, the truth in, of who you are, that we would see you as you are, but Lord, that we would never compromise on loving others, that we would forgive big, that we would give grace when it was undeserved, but then Lord, as we love, Lord, that we wouldn't compromise on truth on who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.